Well, I have to say that it has been a special delight to have the opportunity earlier this morning to study together with some of the uh, young ladies and gentlemen around here. And in fact, uh, I don't know, kids, should, should we tell them? We decided I love them so much and they were so great. They're going back to Florida with me this afternoon. So the plan is hurry, rush home, pack, meet at the airport at 3.30 and uh, well, thank you. no, they were fantastic, and it is such a great compliment to you who are raising them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord uh, that uh, uh, they were just absolutely outstanding. And and uh, we we talked for about an hour about the things that we studied in class, and then we had 15 minutes of question and answer time, and then after that we had very detailed discussion about Star Wars. So I mean, it was really a well-rounded morning all the way around. It is great to be here with you all. And uh, <clears throat> I appreciate all the very kind things that uh, David said this morning. I'll just say this, you know, in life, you go through experiences sometimes where people you thought were your friends, you uh, look around and they're, they're nowhere to be around. And then on the other hand, people you don't know that well come to you. To support you. And David and Jeannie are the latter kind. And I'm just really grateful for them. David preached for us at Valrico back in November and did a wonderful job. And just glad to have this time to share together. And, you know, for me personally, this is uh, the area where not only I lived and worked for eight and a half years, but this is uh, where my wife, Christy, and I reconnected and where we dated and, and got married. And so being able to be back in Middle Tennessee is also great because it brings back a lot of precious memories of my time with her. One of my very favorite memories uh, took place early on in our, our dating life together. Uh, we had only been dating for about four months, and Christy told me she'd gotten me tickets to a movie. And when I tell you what the movie is, uh, you will understand why I knew at that moment this is the woman for me. Because uh, I grew up in central Kentucky, uh, very deeply interested in the uh, intellectual pursuit uh, known as uh, professional wrestling. And uh, in central Kentucky, where, where I grew up, the wrestling that I watched on Saturday morning emanated from Memphis, Tennessee. And uh, the big star was Jerry the King Lawler, who now is just a commentator. But back in the day, he was the big star. And uh, back in 2010, there was a documentary made about Memphis wrestling, and Christy got tickets to go to the Belcourt Theater over in the Hillsborough Village area of Nashville to only, of course, the most sophisticated venue for such an enterprise as this, as you know. And I knew when she got me tickets to go see this, this documentary about Memphis wrestling and bought me the book and poster that went with it, I knew this is the woman for me. So anyway, I remember watching an episode one time where uh, when Jerry the King Lawler was a bad guy and he was talking about all the terrible things he was going to do to his opponent, Austin Idol. And after he gave this long litany of things he intended to do to Austin Idol, he said, and that's the gospel, baby. Now, what did he mean when he said that? That's the gospel. He's using the word gospel in the sense of that which you know you can absolutely count on. If I tell you that I'm going to do this, 
then it is so certain and true that I will do it. It's as if it is the gospel. We even sometimes have an expression, the gospel truth. Although it's not an expression I've heard much recently. Because the world has changed a lot from the time that I was their age, watching championship wrestling on Saturday morning until now. As we were talking in class, some of them were telling me stories, some of our younger students this morning, about friends they have who are atheists. When I was 10 years old, I didn't even know what the word atheism meant, much less had any friends who were atheists. When I was a kid, you could very much rely on the fact that your next door neighbors would believe in God. They believed Jesus was the son of God. They believed the Bible was the word of God. And then you might sit down and have conversations about what does the Bible say about baptism or about what a church should look like? Well, those days are long gone. Now, fundamental questions are at issue. And so, as we talked about today in class, the world's changed. That's okay. We'll just learn how to adjust and deal with, with what we have to deal with. So this morning, we talked about reasons to believe in God. And what I want to do in our time together today is to talk with you about why we can trust in the Gospels. And I think the best way to do this is I just want to share with you things that I have heard either friends of mine who are not believers say, or things that I've read from unbelievers as to why they don't think you can trust the Gospels and respond to those, okay? And the first, the first objection is that the Gospels contain biased testimony. Several years ago, when I lived up in Illinois and preached, one of the young men there was losing his faith, and he said it was because of this book he had read. And this was like the first of almost what became a cottage industry of books of believers who've become atheists. And this particular writer says, the gospel stories are no more historic than the Genesis accounts are scientific. They are filled with exaggerations, miracles, and admitted propaganda. In other words, the Gospels have a point of view, and so therefore you cannot accept them as objective history. Well, here is what I would say in response to this. All history has a point of view. Uh, you know, it was Super Bowl was just a few weeks ago, and I have a little bit of an obsession with Vince Lombardi, the legendary coach of the Green Bay Packers, and so I've got several biographies and one autobiography of his that I like to read, and they're different. And the reason they're different is because just in deciding which parts of his life are important enough to include in the book reflects a certain point of view and a certain perspective. So all history is going to bear a perspective or a point of view. The issue is, knowing that that is the case, can you rely on what's being said? So the Gospels are very clear that they have a point of view. If you'd like to look with me, look toward the end of the Gospel of John in John chapter 20. John chapter 20. John spells out his point of view in verses 30 and 31. When he says, John 20, 30 and 31, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God 
and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, there is no question that John clearly has a point of view, has an objective. When you read this book, he wants you to believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, and that he's the Son of God, and that you'll trust yourself to him so that you can have eternal life. But the issue here is not, does he have a point of view? All history does. The issue is, do we have reason to believe that the history given to us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is reliable? I would say this, first of all, the idea that if someone has a vested interest in what they're writing about means you can't trust them, would exclude a lot of history. One of the best books ever written about the Holocaust against the Jews is called Night by a Jewish author named Elie Wiesel. Do you think he has a point of view about the Holocaust? Do you think he has a, an interest at stake? Of course. But that doesn't mean that therefore we just dismiss out of hand what is written, it just means we're going to have to examine it and see that it has reliable testimony. How would we know that? Well, one way we would know if something, although it has a point of view, is nevertheless honest, is if it is painfully honest. What do I mean by that? If, if uh, I were to write the autobiography of Shane Scott, so I'm clearly going to have a point of view, I clearly have a vested interest. But if I included in that autobiography the detail that I flunked my first driver's test, which I did, in fact. The guy said I didn't turn my turn signal on 100 feet uh, before I was supposed to turn. And if you lived in my county, the fact that I turned it on at all would put me in the upper echelon. But nevertheless, he said, you didn't turn it on early enough, so therefore I'm, I'm flunking you. All right, so now if I include the detail that I flunked my driver's test, my first driver's test, would that make you feel like what I'm saying is more reliable or less? I think it would make you say that what I'm saying is more reliable because if I'm willing to even include awkward and embarrassing details like that, then it would lend credence to the other things that I'm saying. Well, I want to suggest for you that the Gospels contain for us what, from a certain point of view, might be considered painfully honest testimony, maybe even embarrassing. For example, Mark tells us in Mark chapter 6 that Jesus could not perform any miracles in his hometown. Now, I believe there is a reason why that is the case and that it doesn't impugn Jesus's identity as the Messiah, but you would have to agree that the statement he could not do any miracles there is somewhat of an awkward statement. Or how about the fact that in contrast to a lot of Jewish literature outside of the Bible, where people who are being martyred are in the midst of being put to death talking about how strong they are, and someday they know the bad guys are going to get it. How about in the case of the Gospels, Jesus is crying out, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now again, I believe there's a, a good reason. He's quoting Psalm 22 when he does that. But you understand that that certainly looks a little bit different than a lot of other literature. How about this? In the first century, the testimony of women was not considered legitimate in a court of law. And yet, who are the first eyewitnesses of the empty tomb and the risen Lord? It's women. 
Now, why would you say that if you're just making it up? Isn't it more likely that you're going to give that detail as awkward and embarrassing as it may be in your culture because it's really what happened? And although people may hold it suspect, you're interested in telling the truth. So yeah, we can agree that the Gospels have a point of view, but we can also agree that they are very straightforward in acknowledging very difficult, challenging things, which, by the way, the most awkward fact of all in the Gospels is the Messiah was crucified. We as Christians who glory in the cross, as Paul says, probably find it difficult to understand what a humiliating and embarrassing fact this is in light of the first century. But just to try to put it in context, there's been an inscription found, I think in Rome, actually, which shows this graffiti. It's a man on a cross with the head of a donkey and a man who's at the foot of the cross. And the inscription says, Alexa Menos worships his God. That's how crucifixion was viewed in the early history of the church. And yet the Gospels not only say that Jesus, the Son of God, was crucified, that he willingly gave his life through crucifixion to save us from our sins. So my point simply to you this morning is, you cannot dismiss the Gospels merely by saying they have a point of view. All history does. And the Gospels give us every reason to think that point of view is being given with absolute care to simply tell the truth. All right? Well, here is a second objection. A friend of mine said, you can't use the Gospels to prove the Gospels. The Bible is the claim. It's not its own evidence. Without substantiation via evidence from other independent sources, it is not reasonable to accept the veracity of the extraordinary claims of Jesus' resurrection and divinity. Do you accept the Quran as historical fact? And you know, that is a good question. But let's face it, if a, if a Muslim came in this morning and said, the Quran is the word of God, and you said, how do you know that? And he said, Muhammad said so. And you said, how do you know what Muhammad said is true? Because it's in the Quran. Well, how do you know what the Quran says is true? Muhammad said, well, I mean, we would not accept that. Would we? we would say it's circular reasoning. But that is actually not the claim that we make with the gospel. Our claim when we talk to someone who's not a believer is not the Gospels are the Word of God, so therefore you should believe it, because they don't believe the Gospels are the Word of God. But what we are claiming is this. The Gospels give us reliable testimony, eyewitness testimony. I, of course, believe they are inspired. But if I'm going to talk to an unbeliever, my first step is not to say, hey, this is the inspired word of God. Now you better believe what it says. Instead, my first step is going to be like Luke's first step. Look with me over at the opening of the Gospel of Luke in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Listen to what he says to his recipient, his reader, whose name is Theophilus. In Luke chapter 1, he says this in verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative 
of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Now, I want you to notice Luke's first sentence is not, hey, Theophilus, this is the inspired word of God. You better listen up. Now, Luke believes that. Paul even refers to Luke's gospel in 1 Timothy as scripture. But here's what Luke begins with. He says, there are accounts of the life of Jesus. And they come from eyewitnesses, people who lived and walked and, and saw Jesus, heard Jesus, experienced what he did. And I've decided to take those eyewitness accounts, and I'm going to put them together in an orderly account to give to you. Now, who would be eyewitnesses that Luke could have talked to? Well, here's some examples. First of all, some of the apostles, because we know from the book of Acts that Luke would have had access to the apostles who are eyewitnesses of the life of Jesus. Uh, what about this? Go over to chapter 8, Luke chapter 8. Did you notice in the opening verses of chapter 8 that the text mentions to us that there's a group of women who followed Jesus? They're listed in chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. Verse 2 mentions Mary called Magdalene. Verse 3 mentions Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others. So Luke could have talked to some of these eyewitness followers of Jesus. What about the family of Jesus? We know from the book of Acts, he could have had contact with them. What about the people that Jesus healed? People that are mentioned by name. What about the people that heard Jesus teach, like Cleopas, one of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus? Now, again, I want to stress, I believe that Luke's gospel is the inspired word of God, that the Holy Spirit moved him to write this gospel. But you don't have to exclude that Luke himself did exactly what he says he did at the start of this gospel, which is he investigated, he researched, he talked to people, he got their testimony. And if I'm going to talk to someone who is an unbeliever, my first move is not to say, this is the word of God, you better listen. It is to say, here is an account of eyewitness testimony. Listen to what these eyewitnesses say. But somebody says, no, that's not going to work. Because the Gospels were written long after the events. And so one of my friends on Facebook says, the New Testament is the longest game of telephone ever played. Now, do y'all know what he means? The telephone game? Do y'all know what the telephone game is? Okay. Because I never know these days what you guys know and, and what we don't. I used the expression straight to video the other day with a 24-year-old. He didn't know what I was talking about. Straight to video. So just making sure we know what the telephone game is. All right. I don't think a rational person can truly believe that the events in the New Testament are 100% accurate. Notice what he says. They were written hundreds of years after the crucifixion. Well, first of all, every New Testament scholar, whether he is an ardent believer or an ardent unbeliever, believes that all four Gospels were written 
by the end of the first century. I'll show you a chart here in just a second. But in addition to that, let's think about the telephone game and whether or not the testimony in the Gospels resembles the telephone game. Number one, is in the telephone game, is the message given publicly or privately? It's obviously given privately. That's the whole point. We would start over here at the end with Mr. Red Shoes, and he would whisper his message, and it would go all the way around, and then we get around here to the other side, and then we would see only then what the message was. Is that what the gospel testimony was like? It was given publicly. Here's a second key difference. In the telephone game, there's only one line of transmission. That's the way that it works. You start at one end of the room or the row, and you work your way around the other. In the case of gospel testimony, is there only one source and line of it? Think about all the eyewitnesses I just mentioned. You've got the apostles. You've got the women who follow Jesus. You've got the family of Jesus. You've got the people that Jesus interacted with. There are multiple lines in public, not one line in private. Follow me? Not only that, when do you know whether or not the message being given by the telephone game was accurate? You only know at the very end. Was that the case with the gospel testimony? As all of these multiple lines of eyewitness testimony are being publicly given, who is around to say, wait a minute, it didn't really happen like that? The apostles. And in fact, sometimes there were false statements spread about Jesus. And you can read in the letters of the apostles where sometimes they have to step in and say, no, wait a minute, that is not what was said. That is not what Jesus was like. I think that part of our issue when we want to dismiss the ability of multiple eyewitnesses to reliably pass down information is we live in a culture in which memory is just not important anymore. And here's what I mean by that. When I first started preaching, and for the next couple of churches I preached for, I knew everybody's phone number by heart because we didn't have cell phones that they could be programmed in, and I could just simply, I'm actually not going to say it, because one time I was preaching, and I used the word seriously, and Siri thought I was talking to her, and she asked me what I wanted, but unfortunately, she asked me by the name I have instructed her to call me which is galactic overlord. <laughs> and so right in the middle of a service, you hear, yes, galactic overlord, how can I help you? <laughs> but in any event, in the olden days, when I first started preaching, you could memorize phone numbers. I literally only know one phone number by heart. It's my phone number. Because now you just tell your phone or you just hit the number and then automatically call. So we, because of our technology, don't have a premium on memory like ancient cultures did in which it was just typical to memorize large bodies of information and be able to pass it on. So we have to be careful that we don't dump prejudices based quite frankly on modern limitations back on ancient people 
who did not live under the same limitations. Now, the Gospels give us multiple lines of eyewitness testimony that were written within living memory of Jesus himself. Here is a chart that comes from a book that describes different scholars' opinions as to the date of the Gospels. I just want to call your attention. The column on the far right-hand side is by a gentleman named Bart Ehrman, who teaches at the University of North Carolina, who grew up a very conservative evangelical, who now considers himself an agnostic, and even Ehrman, in his standard introduction to the New Testament, which is widely used as a textbook all over the world, even he says all four Gospels would have been written within the living memory of the events of the life of Jesus. As one scholar says, the ideal setting for historical writing is distant enough to avoid nearsightedness. You're up too close, myopia, yet within the period of living memory. But somebody says, wait a minute. How do we know that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were the ones who wrote these gospels? One atheist, Richard Dawkins, says, Nobody knows who the four evangelists were, but they almost certainly never met Jesus personally. Incidentally, you will notice an inherent contradiction there, right? Because if you don't know who they are, how do you know whether they met Jesus or not? You don't even know them. But as an aside, he says much of what they wrote was in no sense an honest attempt at history. I don't think we need to go into a lot of detail to show that this is not a, a valid way of thinking. So there are four Gospels. Let's call them one, two, three, and four. The first, second, third, and fourth. And there are four traditional authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Here is the point that I would just ask anyone to consider. Let's assume, for the sake of argument, that these are not the writers of the Gospels. Somebody else we don't know, wrote number one, number two, number three, number four. It is an undeniable fact that from the very earliest records we have of Christians talking about the four Gospels, that the early and unanimous testimony is Matthew wrote the first Gospel. Mark wrote the second Gospel. Luke wrote the third, John wrote the fourth. Now, let's assume for the sake of argument that did not really happen. What are the odds that all over the Roman Empire, it just so happened that everybody just made up Matthew as the author of the first gospel? And they just made up Mark as the author of the second, and they just happened to make up Luke as the author of the third, and John as the author of the fourth. The odds against that would simply be astronomical. And if you're going to make up writers, why would you put Luke in, who's not even an apostle, or Mark, who's not even an apostle? And yet the early overwhelming testimony is that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the authors of these four Gospels. It is early and unanimous. Just to give you one example, a writer named Irenaeus says this, Matthew also issued a written gospel among the Hebrews in their own dialect. You've studied Matthew. You know, it has a very Jewish vibe, starts off with a genealogy. While Peter and Paul were preaching at Rome, laying the foundations of the church. 
After their departure, Mark, the disciple and interpreter of Peter, who, by the way, Peter mentions at the end of 1 Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5, did also hand down to us in writing what had been preached by Peter. Luke also, the companion of Paul, recorded in the book the gospel preached by him. Afterward, the disciple of the Lord, John, who also had leaned upon his breast, did himself publish a gospel during his residence at Ephesus in Asia. This is the testimony of the early Christians. And if you're going to argue, no, they just invented these names, then you're going to have to claim everybody just happened to make up the same names for the same gospel, which does not make sense. But somebody says, that doesn't make any difference. Bart Ehrman, although he believes the gospels were written early, says the gospels are hopelessly contradictory. Let me show you the kind of thing that he's talking about. Would you turn with me in the Gospel of Mark to Mark chapter 15? Mark chapter 15. In Mark chapter 15, it says in verse 25, Mark 15, verse 25, and it was the third hour when they crucified him. And then I want you to turn over to John's gospel, to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. And in John chapter 19, it says in verse 14, Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And Pilate says to the Jews, Behold your king, and they take him away and crucify him. So then, Seems like we've got a contradiction here. Mark says the crucifixion took place about the third hour. John says about the sixth hour. Here's the point that I want you to see. The Gospels follow the standards of accuracy that were used in the ancient world. Why do the Gospels say, for example, about the sixth hour? Why not say at 12.02 p.m. Greenwich Meridian Standard Time? For the obvious reason that in the first century, they did not have the technology to be able to date and to time things with such precision. Whereas we do today. But you know, even today with all of our technology, I had a little bit of a hard time falling asleep last night. I fell asleep earlier than this, but for the sake of argument, if I said to you, I fell asleep about 3 in the morning, I fell asleep at 3 a.m., how many of you believe I fell asleep very late at night? Raise your hands. How many of you believe I fell asleep very early in the morning? All right, so you people are the morning people. And other, we don't like you, okay, because you think of 3 a.m. as early in the morning. I think of it as late at night. Now, what's, is that a contradiction? No, because even with all the technology we have, we are going to approximate time differently, which is exactly what is taking place here when the Gospels give us approximations for the time of Jesus' crucifixion. Obviously, it happened at some point in between, and each of the Gospel writers is approximating it based on his perspective, just like we did with regard to what time I fell asleep. 
The point I want you to see is that when we look at the Gospels and apply to them standards of accuracy, not with the scientific precision of our day and time, which we don't even use in common vocabulary, versus the accuracy expected in the first century, the Gospels uh, are going to look very favorable by those standards. But somebody says, wait a minute. Weren't there other Gospels? Did any of you all read the Da Vinci Code or see the movie? This was the big thing back about 15, 16 years ago. And uh, recently, Bible study for a few weeks with, with someone who gave a lot of these very same arguments, including this one. So there's a character in the Da Vinci Code who says, you know, actually, there were more than 80 Gospels considered for the, should be new. Obviously, my accuracy is uh, as wanting at times for the New Testament, and yet only a relative few were chosen for inclusion. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John among them. I want to say, first of all, there even among the other quote-unquote gospels, there's not 80 of them. There's just a handful. And the reason that the early Christians do not accept them is twofold. Number one, for the very same reason they did accept Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, namely they are written by apostles or associates of apostles, they believe these gospels are not written by apostles or associates of apostles. But there is an even more fundamental reason these Gospels were rejected. And that is because they are obviously not connected to the Old Testament storyline. And anytime someone brings one of these Gospels up, I have found the easiest way to illustrate this point is to just read one of them. So here's an example. This is from something called the Gospel of Judas, dated in the second century. Judas is talking to Jesus, and he says, I know who you are and where you have come from. You are from the immortal realm of Barbelo, and I am not worthy to utter the name of the one who has sent you. I see some frowns, like, what? Barbelo? Is that like in Habakkuk or something? I mean, I've never read that term before. Well, it's not in the Old Testament at all, because barbelo is not a Jewish concept. It comes from a Greek philosophy, which says that there is a God, but he has nothing to do with the created realm, that there are these uh, roots from God, emanations from God, and one of them is barbelo, and that's where Jesus came from. Now, do you understand that that storyline has nothing at all to do with the storyline of the Old Testament. And that's the reason Christians said, this, there's a disconnect here. It's a lot like that episode of The Office where Jim Halpert is trying to get Dwight Schrute to talk when Dwight Schrute's not supposed to. And so he goes over near him, but he says to Andy Bernard, hey, uh, have you ever seen Battlestar Galactica? It's a story about a guy named Dumbledore Calrissian who needs to return the ring back to Mordor. Well, I'm sorry if you don't know The Office or Star Wars or The Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter. I mean, if you don't know any of those, you got to live more. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, that pretty much covers all the gamut. But for those of you who do, the whole point of this is these stories don't go together. So that's why it's obvious nonsense 
And that's exactly why the early Christians said that these were nonsense as well. Now, um, it's no newsflash, of course, that we are here as believers of the Gospels. So I want to stress a point that I made toward the end of the lesson last night. I believe we have a really good historical case to offer people that the Gospels are reliable history. But there's even more important testimony that may have to come first to get people to listen. And it's the testimony the very earliest Christians gave. There's a letter written by a Roman governor named Pliny the Younger explaining to the emperor how he, how he dealt with Christians. He says, I interrogated them whether they were Christians. If they confessed it, I repeated the question a second and third time, adding the threat of capital punishment. If they persevered, I ordered them to be led off to execution. Those who denied that they were or ever had been Christians, who repeated after me an invocation to the gods and offered adoration with wine and incense to your statue, which I'd ordered to be brought for this purpose, together with the images of the gods, and who finally cursed Christ. All things it is said that no real Christian can be forced to do. I thought they should be discharged. And I just want to say to all of us, that the line of testimony that we all are going to need to give to our culture, which is so different from the one I grew up in, is first of all, the life and testimony that shows here's what a real Christian is. And that's something that all of us in here can do. And maybe you need to make some changes in your life to be able to do that more effectively. Or maybe even to respond to the Gospels and become a Christian. If that's so, why don't you let us know how we can help while we stand in sync. Why do you faint, dear brother? Oh, why do you tarry so long? Your Savior is waiting to give you a place in this sanctified throne.